welcome to a special episode of America's Constitution, or should I say, for today's special episode, Lipcomb Marcus Constitution. Uh, my name is Akhil Amar, and usually at the beginning of this podcast, you, our faithful audience, are accustomed to hearing Andy Lipka do the intro. Um, but as I said, today is a special uh, episode, and uh, Andy and I are going to be reversing roles. Uh, usually you hear Andy asking me questions about America's Constitution more generally, um, and in recent episodes, we've actually talked in particular about the role that certain educational institutions, especially certain Ivy League institutions, have played in the history of America's Constitution. Um, but today we're going to be talking about the internal Constitution, uh, so to speak, the organizational structure of one of those leading um, institutions, Yale University, where Andy and I are both graduates. So, uh Andy, um, welcome to today's show. Thank you, Akil. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> okay. So listen, Andy, um, you're the expert on Yale's constitution, its history, um, and um, some recent controversies about Yale's constitution. So why didn't you fill us in on some background, give us some background and tell us about um, recent events at Yale, events in which you have been actually a leading participant? Thanks, Akil. It's, it's actually great to have this opportunity to talk to, to our audience about this, and um, it's something that I, I care deeply about. And you might say, why do I care deeply about the governance of, uh, of a university? And uh, the reason is because I care deeply about the university itself and, uh, and what it stands for and what it, what it means to uh, my life, to my friends' lives, to my family's life, and to our nation's life. Um, so I was a candidate for um, membership on the Yale Corporation. The Yale Corporation is the governing body of Yale University. And it goes back to Yale's founding in 1701. It, and actually, Yale's been a leader in university governance uh, during, its, during its existence. What do I mean by that? Well, Yale was the first of the major universities to have Laymen sit on its corporation, not just priests. Later, it became uh, a, a university that uh, allowed alumni to function in its governance and to have those alumni who would function in the governance be elected by other alumni. So there was a certain relationship between the university and its alumni, which was enshrined in the governance of the university. And this, I think, spoke to the fundamental value of Yale, which is it's a, a place um, that, when I say value, I mean it values its alumni. Its alumni value it. There's a patriotic relationship between the university and its alumni. So at any rate... Um, well, what be, is, be, before we get to sort of more recent events, uh, just our audience may think, might be wondering, like, I thought this is a constitutional, this is a podcast about constitutional issues. But what we're talking about are constitutional issues of a certain sort about how um, an organization, an important organization, Yale is constituted, how it's structured, who makes certain decisions. Um, I hope I'd like to invite you to talk a little bit about the charter of Yale. And I want our audience to understand that 
before there was the U.S. Constitution, um, there were earlier institutions that were governed by charters. Um, uh, colonial governments had charters in places like Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, and not completely coincidentally, leading educational institutions in early America had these important charters, these governing structures, the charter of um, Yale, the charter of Harvard, the charter of Brown, and so on. So I want you to tell us a little bit about these charters, which are little mini constitutions of sorts, explaining the rights and responsibilities, the roles, the duties, the elections that basically structure, that constitute um, um, authority and, um, and, uh, and, and power, frankly, um, uh, w within an institu these institutions, and Yale in particular. Well, I think that, you know, in, in America, some, we think of the Constitution, in a sense, as our secular religion. Um, that, that if you say, what do Americans have in common? You know, they don't have a, a religion in common. They don't have um, necessarily an ethnicity in common and so forth. Um, if you went to a place like uh, France, you know, hundreds of years ago, uh, most people had the same religion. Most people, you know, their ancestors came from that land, you know, and so forth. But that's not true of America. But we do have in common uh, our Constitution and a certain, certain be belief in the values expressed by the Constitution. So at Yale, the way that the charter uh, was drawn up in the first place, um, you may not find, uh, what you'll find is that it was originally governed by priests. And that was the original purpose of Yale, was to be a, a religious um, institution or an educate, that would educate priests. But over time, it gained a more secular purpose and it gained more secular governance. Um, it also became a great a place of great scholarship, um, of great faculty. And Yale led the way also in faculty having a role in governance. Now, this may not be the case anymore, but this was uh, the way that Yale evolved. And these things are, uh, are in recorded in the charter um, in various ways. The charter is amended uh, over the years. Eventually, um, Yale grows to be encompass a graduate school and so forth, and actually the charter is amended to change the name from Yale College to Yale University, and that, that in itself encodes a certain value. So in the 1870s, um, a rebellion by what the people that called themselves Young Yale that objected to uh, a certain conservatism at the university, um, both on the part of current students and alumni, uh, that is, the conservatism was objected to by those constituencies. They uh, rebelled and um, were able to, through a variety of means, um, change the charter so that representatives on the, on the board, on the Yale Corporation, who formerly were at this point, yes, secular, but they were actually uh, senators, state senators in Connecticut, were replaced with alumni that were elected by alumni. And these elections would take place uh, at commencement so that um, there were, you can find in the records 4,000 people would show up to commencement and a trustee would be elected by 2,500 to 1,500 votes. So the alumni actually had this uh, a regular election um, where they would elect their representatives to help govern the university. Now what did governing the university mean? 
Um, in general, I mean, there were specifics, but in general, uh, it meant set, setting the general path of the university. Um, and again, it's a question of values. Okay, so how does this relate to me and my, and my life? This year, uh, I became a candidate for election to the Yale Corporation by petition. Uh, alumni can be elected by two routes. They can be nominated by a committee called the Alumni Fellows Nominating Committee, or AFNC, or they can be nominated by petition. Um, for various reasons that I'll explain later, uh, the AFNC is an illegitimate body that exists in opposition to the will of alumni and as part of a body that itself now lives uh, contrary, I believe, to the best interests of Yale in general uh, and alumni in particular. So I chose to pursue nomination by petition as the only legitimate route to election, in my view. And in fact, I wrote an op-ed in the Yale Daily News in April calling out the process and calling upon the AFNC nominee to withdraw from the election. And we'll, we'll post that op-ed on, uh, on the show notes on our website. Um, so the reason that we're telling our audience about this is not to promote my candidacy. Um, now how can I say that? Well, if you don't know this already, uh, the Yale Corporation on May 24th, which was the day of this year's Yale commencement, um, the corporation stunned the Yale community by suddenly, you know, secretly and unilaterally ending the option for petition candidacy. They declared that, quote, effective immediately, unquote, alumni would no longer be able to be placed on the ballot via petition. So uh, since this unceremoniously ended my candidacy, obviously we're not conducting this podcast to promote it. Anyway, this action promoted a, an immediate uproar, which uh, has not yet subsided, uh, even though the timing as everyone was leaving campus was obviously designed to avoid pushback. And this is part of the underlying theme of this move, I believe. Uh, the idea of foreclosing debate by doing it when no one was around is at the, at the core of what the trustees are doing. And we'll get into this, but um, there's another theme here, and you know it relates to the overall behavior of Yale's insider administrators towards those who, who care about Yale. Now, this includes alumni, but also, I think, crucially, faculty uh, and more. Um, others, for sure, current students, so forth. I would go so far as to say that the, the story of Yale's actions towards alumni in recent years has been a betrayal of traditions, of duties, and of the fundamental values that the university is supposedly represented. Okay, the recent action uh, in eliminating the petition route for alumni to be elected to the Yale Corporation is uh, the most egregious and obvious, so let's look at it. But having looked at it, you know, there are a host of other actions that I want to mention um, that will be seen as part of a pattern, you know, that should alarm all of us who, who love Yale. So regarding petition candidates, let's be clear on what the corporation has done. No petition candidate has been elected to the corporation in 56 years. In fact, no petition candidate even made the ballot in the past 15 years. Um, this past year, uh, Victor Ash, a former ambassador to Poland, 
um, and mayor of uh, Knoxville, uh, qualified for the ballot. Uh, but even then, he lost by 28 percentage points. So no one should be under the misconception that the Yale Corporation was about to be overrun uh, by petition candidates funded by you know, nefarious, uh, secretive entities with unknown agendas. That's the specter that the corporation and its senior trustee, Catherine Bond Hill, raised in a, in a document they issued that offered their supposed rationale for their actions. But this is entirely disingenuous on their part. In fact, the, the corporation has been overrun uh, by silent candidates with unknown agendas appointed by secretive entities, but it is the trustees themselves who are those offenders. You know, recall that I, I earlier made reference to the illegitimacy of the nominating committee, the AFNC. Well, the AFNC meet in secret. Uh, they are themselves not elected, and they are not representative of, of alumni. Uh, their membership includes a Yale Corporation trustee, uh, as well as three other members who are Yale employees, including one who's not even an alum of Yale, um, and these employees are answerable not to alumni, uh, but to Yale's president, who himself owes his employment to the Yale Corporation. So there's an obvious uh, conflict of interest here. Now, those members of the AFNC, this is the nominating committee again, who are, who are alumni, you know, are appointed uh, by the Yale Alumni Association Board of Governors. Okay, well, that sounds reasonable, except... It isn't, because the Board of Governors is itself not elected. It used to be, and, but in recent years, they eliminated their former you know, quasi-election process and replaced it with a, a Soviet-style take-it-or-leave-it slate that uh, is guaranteed to be appointed. So the board names a slate of, let's say, six candidates for six openings, and you get to vote for the slate or vote for the slate. Those are your choices. So the Board of Governors, not elected, they select themselves, they select the nominating committee. Okay. Now, here's the worst part of this. The candidates nominated by the AFNC, who now make up the entire ballot, um, and pre because there's no more petition candidates, because they previously, you know, were on the ballot along with petition candidates, but these these... Uh, nominated candidates, and this is really, you know, quite astounding, they are coerced by Yale to agree to say nothing about anything when they stand for this so-called election. Notice I say stand for election. They don't run for election. They give no interviews. They answer no questions. They state no positions. They offer no information beyond the most minimal biographical outline. Now, petition candidates, when they were allowed, um, on the other hand, were not bound by this. And, you know, as I ran, you know, and as I hope to discuss here, you know, I ran largely because they were very important issues that I wanted to discuss. I wanted to bring them to light. I wanted to debate them. Even if I were to lose, which, look, no one elected in 56 years, I probably would have lost. But I look forward to performing that service to the Yale community by bringing these matters to light. So that's one reason, by the way, I'm grateful, Akil, that we're doing this episode today because it's a platform that remains to me and therefore to the Yale community uh, to hear these matters. 
And now you can see how John Adams thought about public service because this is how America's Constitution initially operated. You didn't run, you stood, and you basically stood on your biography. You didn't make public statements, you didn't make promises, you had no campaign, you had no um, um, uh, a platform, you had no uh, uh, a party uh, network. Um, um, People would just say, well, here's John Adams, and here's what he's done, and, um, and he's not going to tell you what he will do, what he does think about this or that or the other thing. You, um, you just, uh, as it were, you don't run on a platform. You stand on your record, on, on your biography. And, and it, that's actually how um, George Washington, in effect, was selected and, and, and re-elected. He had a track record as president after uh, his first four years. And this is how John Adams sort of saw the world, and it changes dramatically, and it gives way to a, a world that's a little bit more like the one I think that you um, uh, want to see for Yale, in which people actually engage in debates. They tell you their ideas. The, the voters think about the, the, the different um, uh, uh, candidates, yes, and their background. And we talked in our earlier podcast about how biographies are important. Um, but we never said, even for the presidency, that... Um, uh, a person's platform was utterly unimportant. We said it was both the person and the platform. Um, and you're saying um, that at least the Yale um, uh, Yale's vision is it's not about platform at all. It's only about person, uh, the the the, uh, the biography, and the Yale insiders will pick um, who that um, those those. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, official candidates are allowed to be. And really, this is worse in many ways because people like Washington and Adams had track records of sorts. With Yale's process, all we get is the most bare-bones bio. We don't know these people. We don't, we don't know anything about them other than this bio. And we really have no sense of the individual that you know, one might gain from seeing them you know, in action, as it were. You know, America did see Washington and Adams in action, uh, you know, to a far greater degree than we're talking about here. So your point is a great one to help us understand Adams' sense of entitlement, but it's even worse in Yale's case. So the real effect of the trustees' action then has been to eliminate candidates chosen by alumni through an open signature process, that is the petition candidates, who, who state what they stand for and make themselves available for questioning and debate in favor of those who refuse to reveal those details and who are chosen in the first place by a closed and illegitimate process, that is the AFNC. In other words, in the end, what's the bottom line? Debate and discussion are foreclosed. That's the effect of the, of the corporation, the trustees' actions. Now, what could be more antithetical to an institution supposedly devoted to light and truth, to academic freedom, to the exchange of ideas? But, you know, we should have seen this coming because the voice of alumni at Yale has been progressively silenced over the last decade, and not just in governance. Now, I know this all too well because I've personally taken up the mantle of alumni service for many years, along with others. I'm not saying I'm the only one by any means. And I've seen a, a fundamental change take place. Ten years ago, 
Yale alumni were led by an executive director of the Association of Yale Alumni, the AYA, um, Mark Dahlhoff, who was you know visionary and inspiring. He championed a culture of innovative alumni leadership, and wherein you know alumni would would bring the fruits of their Yale education, that is, creativity, knowledge, uh, desire to serve, and the energy that those who are inspired bring uh, to the service of Yale and, and to its mission. So we saw in those years the establishment of great innovative organizations, including uh, Yale Gale, which stood for Global Alumni Leadership Exchange, for the Yale Alumni Service Corps, for Yale Alumni College, and an organization which I uh, had the honor to lead, uh, Yale for Life. But then as alumni volunteer leaders, we're contributing to the vitality of Yale in these, you know, unprecedented and unambiguously positive ways. Mark Dahlhoff was dismissed. Now, when that happened, concurrently with that, the Chinese wall between development and the AYA, which assured that the AYA didn't have its hand in your pocket, uh, was eliminated. The head of development, who's not even a Yale alum these days, now oversees alumni affairs. There was a new executive director of AYA hired who had no professional experience in alumni affairs. Yale Gale was eliminated. Service Corps was cut back. Alumni College and Yale for Life had their growth terminated. The advisory council to the Board of Governors, which embodied accumulated institutional know-how among alumni, was eliminated. The Board of Governors ceased to be elected and the system of self-appointed candidates uh, presented for an up or down vote that I described earlier uh, was instituted. And as the alumni leader of the Yale for Life program, where Yale alumni would return to live on the Yale campus for a week or two in the summer and study in seminar with Yale's greatest faculty, this is you know a forerunner to today's EverScholar program that our listeners will recognize from past podcast discussions. You know, I put in over 2,000 hours per year to make this or contribute to making it a widely beloved program, you know, treasured by alumni and faculty alike. And we saw the real glory of Yale firsthand for several years. Uh, it was a community of alumni and faculty thriving and building. But then the curtain fell, as I've mentioned. And then we saw the disrespect and disdain that alumni have been placed in. We can't have a bunch of alumni running around speaking to faculty. That's a direct quote that I was told. A program that sold out virtually every course that never cost Yale any money, uh, which saw a faculty group supporting the program spring up spontaneously and instantly grow to nearly 100 faculty strong, was just summarily eliminated without explanation. But we knew why. Alumni and faculty were working together, and the administrative state at Yale was being largely bypassed and that they couldn't tolerate. So the voice of alumni is disdained, it's dismissed from leadership, and that's why I ran for the Yale Corporation. And now, consistent with that, the alumni voice is dismissed from governance. So why should we care about this? You know, are, are alumni trying to usurp the proper authorities at Yale? I mean, I think that the, the trustees and the administration are, in effect, asserting a form of ownership of the university that they, they don't possess, they don't merit, and they have not earned. 
And one has to suspect that they know this. Why? Because everything we're talking about, silencing debate, excluding alumni, discouraging volunteer leadership, this, these represent the actions of someone that's afraid of dissent, who seeks to exclude other constituencies, and therefore recognizes their own illegitimacy. And fundamentally, it matters because it's a betrayal of Yale's values of light and truth. Even if the trustees were right in every logistical, financial, personnel decision that they make and would make, it would still be fundamentally wrong. Now, they're fiduciaries of Yale, but what does that mean? It means that they have a responsibility to preserve Yale's greatest assets. And I submit that the money and the endowment is not the only thing that falls in that category. There's a reason that Yale, you know, as I said at the beginning, has been a leader since its founding in, in governance, that it was the first university to see, for example, the value of having alumni choose other alumni via a democratic process to preserve Yale's ethos. So who are the proper caretakers of, of this legacy? Or who might it be? I mean, the constituencies at Yale include current students, alumni, faculty, administrators, and staff. So who has the greatest stake in Yale? Who knows it best? And who gives the most? And I'm not just talking about money in many ways. I submit that it's the Yale faculty and the Yale alumni, particularly the most engaged alumni. So you've heard from me, you know, a bit about alumni and Akil, of course, you're a, a fine representative of the faculty, but we're privileged today to be able to welcome a guest to our program who not only is a Sterling professor as you are, which is the highest academic rank and honor that Yale gives to a faculty member, our audience should know, but also he's a member of the faculty senate uh, and even of the executive committee of that body, although he appears today uh, not representing the Senate, but representing only his own views. And the Faculty Senate, though, did uh, weigh in on the recent decision by the trustees as a body, and they issued a, a powerful statement condemning that action. And we'll, we'll put that up on the show notes for this episode. So it's a, a great pleasure to welcome Professor Nicholas Christakis to the podcast today. So Professor Nicholas Christakis is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science internal medicine, and biomedical engineering at Yale. You know, like many of the greatest scholars, he, he defies easy categorization. And let me just say, it's nice to see another doctor uh, here in the, uh, this one, a real scholar. Um, you know, Yale says he's a sociologist and physician who conducts research in the areas of social networks and biosocial science. He directs the Human Nature Lab. And his research is described as uh, falling in, in two categories, connection and contagion. So connection, the uh, rules governing how social networks form, and contagion, uh, the social and biological, biological implications of how they operate to influence thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Wow. That's uh, about as relevant as you can get these days, I think. Um, he's the, the author of, of several books and over 150 articles. He's a member of the uh, Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences, and he's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So uh, welcome to America's Constitution, Professor Nicholas Christakis. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, both of you. Thank you. So I just want to uh, make it clear to our audience that uh, Professor Christakis is here as a, uh, a citizen of Yale. 
So he's he speaks for himself rather than for any uh, larger institution. For example, uh, the Faculty Senate, um, which has actually been an interesting uh, institution in um, what we're going to be talking about, the, the petition controversy, shall we say, um, at Yale, because they came out with a, uh, a strong statement that uh, I'll put up on the, on the website since it's a public statement. Um, but uh, what's it like to be uh, associated intimately with the Faculty Senate, Professor Christakis? Well, first of all, call me Nicholas. Uh, and um, I mean, it's, it was an odd experience for me. I was, the body has been existing for four or six years, and I was in the third or fourth group of candidates that stood for election. I was encouraged by some of my peers to stand for election, and, and uh, somewhat unexpectedly, I was elected. I, I think this is the only third thing I've ever been uh, run for that I was elected in my life. Uh, one, uh, actually, only the third thing I've ever run for. One, I, I ran for a safety patrol when I was in sixth grade and was not elected. Uh, and then I ran for, when I was at Harvard Medical School, I ran to be on the Institutional Review Board, which reviews the ethics of human research. And I, I got, I, my peers elected me for that. And then the only other thing that's been the faculty Senate. And uh, I, I, when I asked to run, I was happy to run because, you know, I care deeply about Yale as an institution, but more generally, I care deeply about these institutions. I see these um, elite universities as almost a hallmark of our civilization. They, they reflect our wealth. They, they reflect some of our most fundamental commitments to, to free expression, to openness, to democracy, um, to the notion of um, free and open debate, to the notion of advancement of science, uh, to the notion of progress. Um, and so I think these institutions are worth preserving. I think these institutions are worth um, perfecting. And um, so when I was asked to play a role or run and then elected to, to be on the faculty Senate, I was uh, delighted to serve. And I've only been on one year, so I'm getting to know my colleagues. And, uh, you know, it's been an interesting experience. There, there are 20 people, uh, all of whom care a lot about Yale. Uh, this is a faculty, but I should, to be clear, this is the Faculty of Arts and Sciences Senate. Other universities have university-wide Senate, so this is just the FAS. And they all care a lot about Yale. You know, when we talk about the, the faculty as caring about Yale, um, the faculty traditionally at Yale has had a, a prominent role um, in decision-making, um, not so much necessarily recently, but um, uh, in reviewing, you know, the history here of the Yale Corporation and so forth, uh, you know, the uh, it was said um, at Harvard um, in the late 19th century that the trustees ruled at Princeton, the president ruled at Harvard, but at Yale it was the faculty. Um, and actually... I don't know that saying. That's interesting. And in 1871, here's a quote from the president of Yale... With scarcely an exception, no law has been passed, no officer appointed, unless after full consultation and exchange of views between the boards of control and of instruction, unquote. So, you know, that, that refers to the question of who's making decisions at Yale. Um, and um, that's really, in a sense, what constitutions are about, isn't it, Akhil? 
exactly. It's they they define the the roles and responsibilities of of different folks. There's sometimes a tension between the question who has a right to make a decision and who's most likely to make the right decision. So so um, whom do you uh, trust to to um, to, to get things right, and, and that might be different for different sorts of questions. So I'd love to hear Nick's thoughts again, and he's speaking only for himself, not um, uh, ex officio, but just um, what should the faculty senate be doing? What should its role be? Um, uh, uh, um, and, and how do well, you think about... Not necessarily the senate, but the faculty. Oh, the, fa- the faculty as a whole, yeah. Well, well, how do you think about the different constituencies that kind of make up Yale? Well, I mean, to be honest, we are kind of we're we're veering outside my expertise. You know, I'm not someone who, for example, knows about the regulation of nonprofit institutions or the history of American universities. I mean, I know a little bit about these things, but um, uh, and I myself struggle candidly with the um, the balance of power between, uh, let's say, the executive, the president. And um, I don't know. I guess the legislature, mm-hmm. the uh, the faculty. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, I there are times when the faculty can be very hidebound and um, and conservative, let's say, and um, uh, and fractious and unable to decide. And you need uh, you know a general. Um, and there are famous examples of this. You know, uh, Eliot at Harvard famously redirected that university a hundred years ago. Hutchins at uh, Chicago famously redirected that university a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose there have been such people at Yale too that I can't call to mind immediately who made central decisions at important moments, perhaps against faculty opposition. Um, so on the one hand, I see the role for such a thing, for a, for a powerful executive, let's say. On the other hand, these are ostensibly democratically uh, run bodies. The endowment, as I understand it, is in the service of the faculty. There's a, an entity called the Joint Board of Permanent Officers, which is, that I, as I understand it, is an, a key decision-making body, but it's fallen into, which is somehow constitutionally required at Yale, and I guess has some kind of ultimate authority in certain ways that I don't fully understand. But that has become a bit of a rubber stamp. It's like faculty meetings. People don't go, or if they go, it's been, um, it's been watered down. So... Um, the, the real problem, as I see it at our major uh, American universities right now, is not so much the, um, the balance of power between senior administration, who often are, after all, professors themselves, or have spent our academics, and the faculty, but rather the rise of a bureaucratic class yes. uh, at these institutions. Yes. And uh, there has been... Since um, since a wonderful book called The Fall of the Faculty that was Johns Hopkins University Press about 20 or 30 years ago was already documenting this trend with a burgeoning uh, uh, number of deanlets, a higher and higher fraction of the budget assigned to these individuals, uh, an opacity in decision making. These are like this is like the DMV. You can never identify the person that is making a decision. <laughs> they have their own agendas. They have their own agendas, which uh, are not necessarily the mission of the university. And to be clear for me, the mission of the university is the preservation, production, and dissemination of knowledge. There is no other rightful you know, mission of the university, in my opinion. Here, here. And um, and those administrators don't, non-faculty administrators, administrators often don't have that mission in mind. They have other agendas in mind, one of which, incidentally, is just merely the preservation of the bureaucracy, which is, of course, the inexorable working of bureaucracy for centuries. 
So I agree. Uh, one of the problems that I've seen in my academic career, yeah, is is that. So you know, I think I think often this these groups of people, and they're very large. Let's just let's just be very clear. Uh, I think when I was at Harvard, I was at a faculty meeting. This was about 15 years ago. The president was Larry Summers, and he came to give a talk. And I think at that talk, I heard something like that the faculty of arts and sciences had risen by 10% in size in the previous 10 years, but the, but the, but the size of the non-faculty bureaucracy had gone up by a factor of, of five or something, you know, that had gone from 200 people to a thousand people. Mm-hmm. These are enormous numbers of people that consume a huge amount of wealth. And it's mm-hmm. very unclear to me exactly what they're doing. Um, and, and I'll say one more thing, and this is beginning to get the attention of the faculty Senate is the number of professors is flat. Yale has the second biggest endowment of any institution in the world, as far as I can tell, you know, such institution, university, mm-hmm. has one of the highest per capita endowments. Its uh, cost of real estate is very low compared to Stanford, Harvard, MIT, and other competitors of ours. So where's the money going? You know, where, the f- faculty level, you know, where, where, what is it being spent on? You know, anyway, so I'm meandering, but, you know, these no, are some no, of the things no, that are no, beginning no. to this get is the, the You're attention. not. This is the essence of the thing. And, you know, Nicholas, you and I haven't talked about this in, in great detail, but I very much resonate with what you're saying. And I, I want to just bring in a few other constituencies that Andy and I talk about, because universities are complex ecosystems, fragile in certain ways, but, but long-standing in, in other ways. So we need to think about current students and alums, the, the larger um, uh, community and uh, 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 the city or, or in which a, a university is, is, is embedded, the alumni, of, of course, Parents, those are all um, you know, faculty, um, uh, the president, um, uh, and, and the core administrators, and then all the bureaucrats. Those are sort of different elements in this complex ecosystem. Um, and what we're talking about is who should be doing what, who should be trusted as on certain things and, and others. Here's one thing that you and Andy and I all have in common. I just want to identify it for our audience because I think, truthfully, it makes us special. We all went to Yale, and not just Yale, we three, but Yale College. And, and, and those of us who went to the college have a, have a certain special attachment to the place, I, I think, you know, because we came at a very young age, a very formative age, and we made certain lifelong friendships, many of us, you know, in those bright college years, so to speak. So we all went to the college, um, and um, we are also, us three, um, so, and then, of course, we're alums, but we're also Yale parents, which is interesting. It gives us a, an interesting perspective on the college and parents of Yale College, um, uh, current students or, or graduates. It gives us a different generational perspective on on what's going on. And um, Nick, you and I have been on the faculty, and, and Andy has been very involved in all sorts of alumni um, uh, uh, relations. And um, and and we're not m- we're not mere administrators. I suspect, you know, I haven't talked to you, Nicholas, about this, but that we've all um, actually probably, try, you know, donated to Yale in, in various ways, our, 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 our time, our um, um, uh, 
um, financial resources. It's not just a paycheck for us, as it might be for some people who are merely employees or, I, I forgot even to mention just the, the, the staff, employees, but or, or bureaucrats, um, again, who, and who may not have quite the same perspective on the place um, that, 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 that we do. So just, you know, um, and you and I haven't talked about this, but it's interesting that we have a very similar view. I think the mission of the place is light and truth, advancing human knowledge and um, discovering it and, and disseminating it. And that's not the same mission as other valuable things in life. Social justice is important, but it's not quite the same mission. And there are many important things, but there are other institutions that do them. And then who can be trusted, you know, to, to, as the, the proper stewards and stakeholders of the institution? That's what we're talking about. And I think that, you know, what the reason that recent events, uh, there are many reasons, but one reason that recent events have resonated with many alumni and other citizens of Yale, like, uh, like yourself, um, and of course you are an alum as well, is because um, we care about the place and we have a certain, we've had traditionally a certain role in having a voice about what happens to the place. You know, we care about it, we follow it, we seek to uh, keep it on track, you know, and so forth. And to the degree that that role is diminished or, you know, abridged uh, and so forth, uh, there are several things that, that are hurtful about that. First of all, um, we want to have some influence, we want to have some level of control, and that's reduced. But there's also a certain level of, of, of insult um, that goes along with it, that, that we are not trustworthy, um, that we, are not, uh, we don't have the best interests of the university at heart, um, and so forth, and that other people are more properly the stewards of, of, of Yale. Um, and so, that, so I think that, that those are some sentiments that have resonated uh, with me and many people that I've spoken to about this, um, do you have a reaction to those to those thoughts? You're talking, you're talking, you're talking specifically about the recent decision by the Yale Corporation to uh, quote effective immediately uh, nullify a election procedure in place since the 1920s to elect alumni representatives to the to the corporation to the board. Uh, I was very surprised by that. <clears throat> that did not strike me as the action of an institution confident in itself or an institution that felt strong. Um, just, I, I mean, Akhil will know more about governance by far than I will, but I don't quite understand what was the threat in allowing uh, petition candidates to run for the office? Uh, even if, First of all, it's democratic. It's like a like you know like that would be my bias. <laughs> Let's have the more you know the the more open and the freer the elections, the better. And I, it didn't escape my notice that at the same time, as many people in our country rightly were decrying the restriction on the franchise by many Republican governors and Republican legislatures in our nation, right, where all these rules were being promulgated to restrict the franchise, reduce mail-in voting, reduce hours of voting, increase the paperwork required to vote. People were saying this is anti-democratic. Right at that moment, <laughs> the Yale Corporation saw fit to also restrict the franchise. And the irony was just enormous to me. And again, it did not strike me as in keeping with the values, looks, you know, at Veritas, looks uh, of our institution. And it struck me as weak because even if, the, even if a person won, they'd be one voice out of However many, you know, uh, what did we say, 18 or 19 voices? Mm -hmm. That's good as far as I'm concerned. In fact, the research in my laboratory, I do research on uh, 
on the evolution of human social interactions, the biology, the genetics, the, the, the function. We also do work on uh, artificial intelligence, how adding artificial intelligence agents to human groups. So if you have what we call a hybrid system of humans and machines, how do the machines potentially modify how the humans interact with each other and so on. And as a result of all this work, I've been thinking deeply for a long time about optimizing performance of human groups. And it turns out some variety of opinion is good. You know? So, so I, you know, I was just really stunned by, um, by this action by the corporation. And I, you know, I was unpersuaded by their justification, just speaking as an individual. And, and I don't know, how, you, how did you guys see can, it? Can you tell us what the, uh, the faculty Senate actually you know, did in response to this, just to, to, to bring our audience into the, the loop? Well, uh, very quickly after this, like within a week or so, the faculty Senate drafted and released a statement, which is publicly available, uh, basically decrying this out and speaking, um, extremely, you know, uh, with one voice and quite forcefully that they thought that this was a bad idea to, um, to um, annul this procedure. And again, one of the ironies of this procedure, which is worth mentioning, is, uh, which I frankly didn't even know until, until after, it was with, after the, uh, they stopped this uh, way of electing uh, members of the board, was that the first Jewish member of the board, and I believe the first female member of the board, actually got onto the board by this procedure, which vindicates the belief that this type of outlet was necessary for progress, that this is actually a democratic um, feature of our governance that has now been nullified. So, you know, with that history, I don't understand how they reached this decision. Like, I, I cannot understand it. And I think the other members of the faculty Senate, speaking on behalf of the Yale um, Faculty of Arts and Science faculty, uh, really, um, you know, strongly um, um, rejected uh, this move and released a statement that, that you saw, um, you know, within a week or so of this, of this event. It's also kind of interesting to me that, um, that it, it's, it's like, wouldn't you want to discuss this change a little bit more broadly and like solicit opinions of constituencies like, if, you know, you could ask the alumni, dear, you know, alumni, we're going to, we're going to survey the alumni to see if you no longer wish to have the burden of having to consider petition candidates, or we're going to ask the faculty, you know, um, what do the faculty think about this? Why did they not seek those opinions? Um, it's a bit odd, right? Well, I so, think it, it, it's actually consistent in a sense, because um, uh, as you and I have discussed, you know, the last petition candidate was elected 56 years ago. And the yeah, so uh, it also it doesn't succeed very often. Right. So what was the fear? Right, you know, right. And someone actually, you know, no one has been on the ballot as a petition candidate for fifteen years because they set the bar very, very high. This year, you know, someone succeeded in getting on the ballot, and he lost by twenty-eight points. So twenty-eight percentage right. points. Twenty-eight percentage points. So actually, if we if we look at the facts, I think we can conclude. Uh, and look, these facts are available to the to the members of the of the board, so they have to be aware of them. That that isn't what it was about, because it wouldn't make any sense if that was what it was about. So if we give them credit for making oh. sense, then what it is about is the fact that they have eliminated not petition members of the board because they weren't happening anyway, but petition candidates. So what is the difference between a petition candidate 
and the candidates that are otherwise available. But just more generally, it, it doesn't, it smacks of anti-democratic right. processes to have committees that select, I mean, that's what they do in Iran, right? Like the, the Ayatollahs decide who can stand to be president. It's what they do in Hong Kong, right? Where the Chinese Communist Party decides who can stand. This is not, you know, that even that has a flavor of not being quite you know, right. Oh, absolutely. So having this parallel procedure, Having this parallel procedure of having, you know, or, or you say, you know, you, you do not, you do not profess to have these commitments. You just say, look, we're a private institution. We're closed. We do not believe in looks. We do not believe in free and open discussion or debate. We're just going to self-perpetuate or however, but you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't profess to have these values and then not honor them. In fact, honoring, this is what, this is what principles, I, I recently read a statement, which you guys probably know, which is a principle isn't a principle until it's cost someone money. <laughs> and so a principle isn't a principle until it's, it's difficult, right? Our principles are hard to implement and it's in the breach where we honor them. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, earlier the notion that the administrative or bureaucratic aspects of the university have, have you know, ballooned, whereas the faculty, you know, uh, content, faculty numbers have remained stable, um, and so forth. And the question then becomes, uh, who is making decisions for what? So you mentioned that the, you know, the presidency, you, you know, there's a value to an executive, but do you feel that the presidency of Yale is somehow beholden to the, uh, to the bureaucracy in some way, or that the bureaucracy does not act, um, not because of bad people, but because of its structure, you know, in the interests of the university? Is there, are there structural problems at the uh, university? Well, I don't, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but what, what I've been told is that university presidents are more able to control the bureaucracy and feel powerful because they can order bureaucrats to do things, then they are able to control the faculty and tell the faculty what to do things. It's like herding cats. And so this is one of the reasons that I've been told that um, there's a kind of um, hand and glove relationship between um, university, senior university administrators and um, the, you know, the inertia and the, the, the dead weight to, I mean, that's a bit of a harsh uh, phrase, but, you know, of a bureaucracy, which just continues and continues. Um, you know, I have, I have, I, I couldn't, I couldn't help but wonder, for example, uh, why in times of crisis, there's always, uh, let's say, a restriction on uh, faculty hiring, but never a reduction in staffing of non-faculty personnel at the university. I believe, and I'm unashamed to say this, that the the primary mission of a university is being fulfilled primarily by the faculty. And, and that, and, uh, you know, uh, and Nick, Nicholas, this is why you and I and Andy might feel this most palpably because we were undergraduates at Yale and each of us, I bet, you know, this is the first time the three of us have actually had a conversation together, but I bet each of us reflecting on our Yale experience, we talk about our classmates who meant a lot to us and from whom we learned a lot and professors who really, at least for me, changed how I think about the world. And I can't think of a single bureaucrat or administrator 
that, that had that life changing effect on me. I did not come to Yale um, as a 17-year-old. Se- uh, I arrived on my 18th birthday. I didn't come for y- your phrase, but it's, I think there's an, some accuracy to it for the dead weight. I came for the professors and the students. That's what I actually came for. Um, and I had some connection I'd heard, uh, to some alums who had told me about the place. Um, and so, yes, that actually is what that's at, the, at the core of the thing. That's the lux at Veritas. It's the professors who are pushing back the boundaries of human knowledge and sharing um, their discoveries with the students who then are talking with each other about all that. That actually is the essence of the universe. I would say not quite people coming up with all sorts of rules and regulations about all sorts of things that are at best peripheral to light and truth and sometimes antithetical to it. So that's why I think you and I and Andy have a certain view um, that, uh, that we, about the different parts of the, the university. And I think that when I was talking earlier about you know, the question of, well, you know, alumni should have something to say or faculty should have something to say, it's not a matter of power or, or really or control or even prestige. It's a matter of who has the visceral, the intimate knowledge, the sense of the place, and what matters there. You know, I understand what you're saying, and I agree. But I would say that in addition, and I'm not, um, in addition to the sort of sentimental arguments that the three of us have been making just now in the last few minutes, I believe that there are very strong, compelling philosophical arguments that one can make. It is a big deal to be a senior administrator at one of these institutions. You are a steward of enormous resources, not just of money, but of talent. You have a duty, in my view, not just to the alumni, not just to the students, not just to the faculty, but to our society. You know, being a, being a senior administrator in one of these elite institutions in our country is a very important role in our society. It's like being a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or being a United States senator or being, you pick what other influential roles are. And I think that you are entrusted with uh, the furtherance of a particular mission. And that mission is, as we've been saying, the preservation, production, and dissemination of knowledge. And so I think when you deviate from that mission or you, um, you implement policies that take you away from that mission, it's not just about the... Um, the experience of students or the kind of uh, life of the faculty that you are, um, that you are disturbing. Uh, one of the things I like to say sometimes is I feel very lucky that I happen to be alive at a moment in the history of the planet where there is the occupation of professor. I don't know what I would have been a thousand years ago. If I had my brain and talents such as they are, if I'd been born, I, maybe I, if I was lucky, I would have been a blacksmith or something. I mean, I would mm-hmm. certainly not have been an aristocrat. I mean, I'm not an aristocrat, so I wouldn't have been an aristocrat. Yeah, I, would have, I would have had some intellectual and, and uh, physical skills and tried to make myself useful. But I happen to live in the late uh, 20th century, early 21st century. And, uh, and these institutions exist and they employ people like me. And I feel blessed and fortunate and privileged to be able to work in such a place whose mission is the production and dissemination of knowledge. But these institutions do not exist to provide me with employment. Mm-hmm. I'm an instrument in the, in the furtherance of this mission. Mm-hmm. In other words, 
the wealthy people have given money to these institutions and tax dollars flow to these institutions, not to provide cushy jobs for someone like me, but for us to honor the mission of this university. Exactly. And so, so the, my point, the point I'm trying to make is, is that, is that there's some bigger issues at stake here. I mean, yes. this is not just about Yale alumni upset about how the institution is being run or Yale faculty upset about how it's being run. It's really a question about what is the, what is the role of these in, important institutions in our society and how should we honor that role? Uh, and, and what procedures can we put into place and allocation of resources can we put into place to further this very fundamental mission? At least that's how I see it. Me too. And, and I think, you know, the, the point here is that to the extent the university begins to deviate from that mission, there needs to be a mechanism by which people that are stewards of the university can recognize that and can affect change in that. And we call those elections. Exactly so. You know, because otherwise, what's the self-corrective mechanism when we start to drift away from the core mission of the institution, um, which is the, dissemin- the, uh, the advancement and dissemination of knowledge? And I think the implication here by both of you, and I, I might, uh, you know, find myself in agreement, is that perhaps we are deviating. Perhaps Yale is deviating from that mission at some, at some level. Do you believe that they are? I personally, before Nicholas jumps in, think that there are other g- good things in the world, but they're not always the same thing as Lux at Veritas. I would say in some sense, yes, but the real question is, to what extent is it deviating because of secular changes in our society? You know, it's, it's caught up in a stream. You know, the, the world is changing, and Yale is part of the world. And to what extent is it deviating because of its own navigation? Um, and part of that you can judge by looking at our peer institutions and seeing what they're doing and what they're experiencing. But even there, I think, like one of the things that often upsets me when I have these conversations about these topics is there's this kind of crazy way in which we have lost our mojo sometimes. Like we ask, well, what is Stanford doing? What is MIT doing? What's Princeton doing? What's Harvard doing? Honestly, I'm interested in what those universities are doing. But that's really not how we should be approaching the problem. <laughs> what we should be saying is, what should Yale do? right? What should Yale do about this topic? You know, uh, there was a time, I believe, and I don't know if I'm being, you know, I mean, I don't want to have this kind of starry-eyed vision of the past, but I remember a time when university presidents testified in the United States Senate about matters of import to our nation, whether it was the, you know, innovation, the innovativeness of our nation, the economic uh, or political matters of the day, the social matters of the day. I don't know if that happens anymore. And maybe that's because the job has become impossible, right? I mean, it's a, there are other ways in which the institution has fundraising exigencies, um, other political constraints. I mean, I, I grant that the modern universities may need to be different. Maybe they are different. Maybe they're unavoidably different given the way the world has changed. But, but what I'm saying is, is that I think the way to decide what to do is not simply to look around. I think it's to reason from first principles. And we have the luxury of being enormously wealthy and having a tremendous brand and tremendous human capital. I believe we should be able to reason out what we should do and then do it. I think that it would be right for us to pause as an institution and revisit what our fundamental commitments are. And maybe this... um, some of the recent events in the last uh, 20 years um, and in the last year um, provide us an opportunity to just sort of, you know, not be 
not be reactive, but be proactive. In other words, instead of constantly reacting to events and um, the world around us, you know, step back and say, you know, what what is the role of such institutions, and in particular, our institution? I think sometimes, you know, big things are made of small things. And, and uh, you know, we were talking earlier um, about a perhaps a more uh, lofty or romantic, uh, you know, view of ourselves as alumni and so forth that we all went to Yale and have this sense of Yale's mission and uh, and what Yale should be. And then we got into questions of, well, there's also the, you know, the overall mission of the university and so forth. And I think that these these things are related and... Um, and I think that it's it's useful to talk about some small items that because someone listening to this might say, well, you really haven't given me any cause to believe that Yale needs to reconsider or rethink other than that it's just a good idea to do it from time to time or that they, there's this problem with the with the petition candidates. And that doesn't seem like a fundamental problem, even though it might be a, you know, a particularly egregious one. Well, here's here's a fundamental problem. I know I interrupted you. Let's take the, the current Yale trustees. How many of them are now or ever have been genuine academics, not just academics, but toweringly important academics? And how can actually the body that's leading Yale not actually have leading academics on it? Really? I mean, maybe they're money people, fine, you know, but, but that's not, Yale is not just a money institution. It's a Lux at Veritas institution. And Nicholas and I both believe at the, the center of that are scholars. It's a scholarly community that's advancing and, uh, and disseminating human knowledge. And, and, and our corporation doesn't look at all like that today. Shame on them. Well, I agree with that. But let me also say, so let me give you two examples that come to mind. And again, these are small things, so um, relatively. But I think that they're, that they're revealing. So one has, was the recent decision um, to essentially eliminate the shopping period at Yale. So for our audience that, that may not have, have gone to Yale College, the shopping period um, has been for decades um, a, f- a feature that Yale and very few other institutions have had where uh, students for the first 10 to 14 days or so of the semester um, did not have to pre-register for courses. They can attend basically any course they want. Not, not There are some exceptions, but for the most part, any course they want. And typically will will attend more than the minimum number. So if you were going to take four courses, you might attend six courses or whatever. And it's an intellectual feast. It's an amazing time. Correct. You know, sampling all sorts of courses and... and, and, and yes. From my point of view, um, it's, yes, it's an intellectual feast, um, literally, in the sense that people would have blue book parties. Blue book was the, uh, the color of the course catalog. Now, of course, it's virtual, but nevertheless, the term has remained. And um, we, the, the campus became uh, a, uh, a place where you would discuss who was a good professor, what were you going to talk about, what, we, what were you going to learn about, and what, what you were excited about. And the notion that the... At, sub- at lunch and dinner. You would, it was a feast, too. You'd be talking about that with your friends. What did you shop? What did, you know, I'll tell you what I shopped. What did you learn today? Um, because at the, in the opening lecture, sometimes the professors are forced at the beginning class um, to tell people, here's what this class is going to be all about. This, this is the big idea of, of, of this course or of this discipline. And I'm going to try to introduce you to that over uh, the, the ensuing semester. And that's why you should think about taking this course. 
And there are all sorts of other things that you could be doing instead. It was an amazing experience. And furthermore, the, um, we've known for a long time that it was difficult from an administrative point of view to run shopping period. You don't know how, how big the class is going to be. You don't know what classroom to assign, you know, and so forth. For the, for the students who are doing extra work because they may be taking extra courses. And for the professors, they have to sort of sell their class more than they might have to otherwise. Um, but nevertheless, everyone was willing to take on these burdens, if, they, if burdens they were, um, for the sake of the value of, of promoting intellectual curiosity and the notion that this is a place where we celebrate the learning. And that really made it important, a valuable statement about Yale. And now, this year, they've decided to essentially get rid of it. You know, they call it, you know, a drop period or whatever, but right. it's essentially gone. Right, and it makes life in, easier for the bureaucrats uh, ma making room assignments, but does it make it actually better for the ultimate um, intellectual experience of uh, the students and, and the faculty? And um, uh, so, so maybe better for the bureaucrats, but is it is it good for the light and truth mission? And the trustees, are they even focusing on this at all? Well, maybe not because they never show up on campus. What trustees, Nicholas, have ever come and talked to you about what it is that you do and, and, and what you think is important? Because trustees haven't come to talk to me. And Nick, Nicholas, you and I are Sterling professors who actually went here and are Yale parents. We actually you know, have a sense of the place. Are these trustees even listening to us? And if they're not, then... Um, and then and they're closing off elections to anyone who wants to talk about anything, raise an issue. Um, th that's the problem, I think, um, of Yale today, truthfully. And, it, and you're right. I don't think it's a problem just about Yale. I think it's a problem about universities generally. There, you're right. As I'm thinking, as I'm listening to you, there doesn't appear to be even any institutional mechanism by which one can reach the trustees. Um, I mean, I certainly have met many of them in you know, at, at certain events or in, you know, had conversations with some of them. I, I, I've known some of them, uh, but I'm not aware of any formal mechanism, nor, nor is there a sense in which, for example, the trustees um, have an open meeting or, um, or come to uh, faculty meetings or anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not aware of any such procedure. Um, and I, and I, I think, I mean, although it would be burdensome on the trustees, I think it would be wise. Um, you know, why don't they, hear from different constituencies. And you're right, they've closed off hearing from alumni, uh, or at least closed off one mechanism to hear from alumni. And you're drawing an analogy, I think, between what, what if any, are the mechanisms to hear from faculty. And candidly, as I'm sitting here thinking about it right now, I'm not aware of any. Do they I mean, even I, sit, do we they could even, write to them. You do, know, I mean, they're, right. but do they even find their email address. Do they even sit in on our classes? Or just, we were talking about the dining halls and the residential colleges, just sit in and, and share meals with undergraduates and, and talk to them about what, what the experience is like today. I, have, I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen them. My, my point about alumni is that any alum understands this, or you would think any alum, although the trustees evidently don't, would, uh, understands this immediately. You know, as soon as, as soon as you discuss this with someone that went to Yale College, they immediately get it. Um, so that's why I think people that have stayed in touch with the university um, through the years and people that are, you know, making their life's work at the university like faculty, these are the, the proper uh, governors of the university, at least at some level. So um, now I know you have to go, Nick, but just um, one other example I wanted to give 
um, which I think goes to the, uh, the sense of academic rigor and the value of the great scholarly work at the university. Um, I became aware a few years ago of a great scholarly project at Yale, the Boswell Papers. So, you know, Yale has been entrusted with the Boswell Papers and for the last 60 years or so has had a, a great project where every year uh, another volume is published uh, about the papers um, and so forth. And this was funded in supposedly perpetuity by uh, some generous alumni, but the money uh, more or less ran out a couple of years ago. And there was about six years left on the project. And in the past, when this happened, and it's happened in, in other situations, um, Yale would step up and fund the rest of it, um, but not in this case. Uh, and, and in fact, not just this case, but they were a whole host um, were just cut off in this manner. Um, and you know, so with, with no discussion, no, no involvement of, the, of you know, the larger Yale community and so forth, and what kind of a statement does that make? Um, about the about the importance of academic rigor at the university. Well, I mean, I think I think that's an interesting example. I'm not familiar with that particular example, although I have been tracking a little bit um, what's happening with university presses around the world. And so, and I recognize that all its resources are not limitless, and there's always difficult trade-offs to make. But if you ask me to reason forward from the presumption that the mission of a university is the preservation, production, and dissemination of knowledge. And I don't know much about the Boswell papers at all, but I suspect that there is no other institution in our society which is preserving that knowledge. So that's our job. And if that's our mission, then we should cut other things. For example, a lot of these uh, bureaucrats who, you know, as far as I know, we don't need another bureaucrat to organize, you know, student engagement. You know, we have enough people like that. I'd rather do the Boswell papers. Um, and so, and the same goes with university presses. The, it's nice when university presses make money. The Yale University Press, as I understand it, and I sit now on the on a oversight committee of the press. Uh, I, I just started, so I'm not intimately familiar with the workings of the press. Uh, you know, does is able to break even, but my argument would be, even if it doesn't, this is a role of the university. Remember, we're, we're supposed to disseminate knowledge, not just to our students. We're supposed to disseminate knowledge to society. Uh, we are supposed to be the engines of discovery. And if you think about over the last hundred years, one of the sources of wealth and power in the American society has been our universities. You know, you know investing for decades in fundamental research which then finally comes to fruition. Just look at the mRNA vaccines. Much of the research that upon which mRNA vaccines so useful in the fight against COVID were, uh, was developed was, was done for 30 years at universities. And it often had you know, no obvious immediate impact. So it, it took decades of work by thousands of people, scientists contributing to this knowledge, accumulating it for deployment when we needed it. And this is the dissemination of knowledge outside of our walls. This is why, incidentally, I also think that it is good for university professors to have a public face. In other words, I, I never held it against colleagues who, you know, you know wrote popular books or, or, or contributed op-eds or, or did local engagements. I mean, if, if we want the public to understand what we're doing and we want the public to willingly give tax dollars to universities, we have a duty to, to tell them what we're, what, who we are and what we're doing and why it's important. So, so, you know, the, so for, even though I know nothing about the Boswell papers, just on the description alone, I would say, 
that's our job. You know, preserving the Boswell Papers is part of the mission of this university, and therefore it should get priority over so many other things that we spend money on. Nicholas, I agree. And you, you talked about deep research, which may not have an immediate payoff, but which changes the world. And that is our mission. And that's more on the science side. I'm so glad you talked about that. I, for many years, was actually on the um, publications committee of Yale Press. And I agree with you that it's nice if it breaks even, but suppose it didn't. We don't expect the library to break even. You know, it's part of a great university to have a great <laughs> library to preserve you know, uh, the, the teachings of the past. And I think of a university of press as pretty similar to the university library. And, and, and so you immediately picked up on that with the Boswell papers and, um, and, and the kind of the, the analogy between a library project and a research project and a university press project. Yes, and if you think about it, there's so many disciplines. I don't, I don't feel like I have to justify. If you ask yourself this question, where in our society is knowledge about Sanskrit rightly preserved? Nowhere else but universities. There's no immediate, you know, that I am aware of, a practical applicability of this knowledge. But the mission of universities is to preserve this. So as a, court, as a group, as a collection, not every university needs a department of Sanskrit. That's not what I'm saying. But as a whole, universities, their mission is to preserve knowledge, and we preserve obscure knowledge. Sometimes the preservation of this obscure knowledge winds up being incredibly important. One of my favorite, I mean, there are many examples of this, like, for example, all the work that was done on uh, feline retroviruses, you know, these, these viruses that caused obscure diseases in cats, and it wound up being crucially important when AIDS hit the scene. Or um, another example, I don't know how precise I have these details, but there were geologists that had been interested in the, um, in the, the, the formation of caves uh, in, uh, in, um, in uh, the Indian subcontinent and the adjoining countries, and they had mapped all the caves in the 1950s, and, uh, and the, this corpus of knowledge was preserved in university libraries, like dense technical reports on, on how these caves were formed and where they were and all of this stuff. And very unexpectedly, 60 years later, when Osama bin Laden was responsible for the attack on 9-11, suddenly we needed to know where the caves in Afghanistan were. And there was some geologist in the 1950s who had mapped these caves for a completely different purpose. And yet we had that knowledge. So, so these, these, you know, mollusks, the study of mollusks. I mean, I, I, I'm, I love zoology. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't study mollusks. Study mollusks. I'm saying the opposite. All of these things which strike people as obscure, it is, this is what our institution, in my judgment, is supposed to do, is preserve this knowledge in addition to discovering new knowledge and disseminating it. So absolutely, uh, that's how I would allocate resources in keeping with the mission. And, and there's so many other things that, I, that's why I'm so interested in learning how is the money being spent at, at all of these elite institutions, including Yale, and is it being spent in a rational fashion in keeping with the mission of the university, or is it instead being spent in some way that's either furthering no good mission or furthering some other mission, which is not what Yale should be doing? Nicholas, and so say you, a true scholar, and you're talking about uh, subjects beyond your own particular area of specialization, and what you say resonates so much with me, and I consider myself a scholar, and I'm in a very different discipline um, but I, I hear exactly what you're saying about mollusks and caves, Sanskrit. One of my uncles is actually a Sanskrit scholar or was a Sanskrit scholar. So, so absolutely. And my 
anxiety, honestly, is I'm not sure at all that conversations like this are happening regularly or even occasionally at meetings of the Yale trustees. Maybe there are, maybe they're not, but they're so kind of um, opaque and and non-transparent that I just don't know. The people on the corporation are not See, leading scholars in their field, as are you, and as you know, I like to think of myself. And there's almost no one on the corporation who, you know, has that life experience, that that perspective on the thing. Um, and that makes me anxious because I don't, I don't know if they really deeply understand the institution for which they are trustees. And now they're closing off one of the few mechanisms. Um, that, that um, uh, uh, might begin to open up a conversation about that. Um, maybe even, you know, if Andy ran as an uh, outside trustee, he wouldn't get elected, but even the conversation, as he said before, um, in the candidacy might be, be a pos- um, begin to create a space for us to talk about things like that, and they don't even want that. Um, and, and I respect them and their commitment to Yale, their service. A lot of them have given a lot of money to Yale, but that's a little different than the kind of thing that I just heard you articulate, which I very much resonate with, which is asking the deepest questions about what's a university for, you know, how to think about our, our, uh, this department or that department um, or this project or uh, our library or the university press and how it fits into not a polyversity, but a university, how all of this actually is supposed to, in principle, fit together. And in fact, that is, I believe, the true fiduciary duty of the caretakers of the university, university is to make sure that we have an institution not just that's fiscally sound, but that serves the purpose it is supposed to serve. And that cannot be done in the, you know, in the absence of discussion, openness at some level. Yeah, and, 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 and Nicholas was especially talking about the deep research of caves, of mollusks, mm-hmm. of Sanskrit. And we've also, though, been talking about especially communicating that um, to our students, uh, undergrad, because um, I think Yale College is the, the, the core of Yale University, and um, in, in graduate and professional schools. And Nicholas teaches, you know, as a, uh, in the medical school, and I'm, I'm in, in a law school. Um, um, but, um, and he and I both teach in Yale College as well. Uh, one of his children um, apparently uh, was in one of my classes, and one of my children was <laughs> recently in one of Nicholas's classes. So, so um, it's the advancement of human knowledge and the preservation of human knowledge, but also its dissemination to people in the here and now. And he's right, not just folks who are lucky enough to be our students in New Haven or at Yale, but to the world. I would like to uh, associate myself with the uh, comments of my eminent colleague and brilliant scholar, Akhil Amar. <laughs> so consider it done. Nicholas Christakis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your Good. scholarship. Thank you for your loyalty to Yale and, and thank you for your friendship. And thank you for being a great teacher to my daughter this semester. <laughs> and vice versa. Thank you guys both. Thank Good you. luck. So that's some great perspective on some of the issues we were talking about, along with a sense of uh, how some faculty view where the university is and what matters there. So where do we stand with the trustees' actions? Well, as I said, for me, the campaign was about more than 
getting elected. It was also about the process. I had set out to get on the ballot via petition, which meant getting over 4,000 signatures. And that was a daunting task because Yale, as part of their general anti-petition candidate bias, uh, gave no access to alumni. So while they could reach out to all alumni via email quite easily, petition candidates didn't have this list and had to scratch and claw to get access to even a small fraction of the 150,000 eligible alumni that Yale can reach. So when you were trying to get these 4,000 signatures for a petition and you had to try to tell people, in effect, who you are, what your background is, what you stand for, what your vision is, um, you know, let's say I've never heard of you and I want to know who you are, what you stand for. How would I have found out that information to decide whether I want to sign your petition, much less vote for you um, if you get 4,000 petition signatures? So I created a website, LipkaForYale.com. Is it still? It's still up. Okay, so um, we can just invite our audience, if they want to know more about that, to just visit this website. We'll put a link up on uh, uh, .com, um to, uh, what's the website's name again? LipkaForYale.com, and it's uh, spelled out. I didn't use the numeral four. It's it's the word okay. F-O-R. LipkaForYale. Okay, so, so people can see a little bit more about what your candidacy was. And you weren't on the ballot yet. You were just trying to get 4,000 signatures Correct. initially. I wasn't on the ballot yet. So you might ask, what really has been lost with all this? Here's what it comes down to. Trustees, by, by eliminating the ability for voters to make a decision based on, on actual information, are saying we want to determine for ourselves who the people will be on the board. We are the people that should be trusted with determining the content of the board, as opposed to the alumni, because essentially they're trying to take the decision out of the hands of the alumni, because they're taking the information away. So if you have no information, you have no decision to make. And here's the constitutional problem. Yale's constitution, constitutions are often about who decides. And Yale's constitution, in effect, says the alums should decide these six, these six spots. And the existing trustee said, we don't trust the alums to decide in an election to make a choice. And we have Yale's best interests at heart. So in effect, we're going to try to, in effect, handpick our, our successors. It would be like a president of the United States saying, look, I have the best interest of the country at heart. I, I, I know my own heart and, and it's well-intentioned. So I'm going to cancel elections going forward because I, you know, I'm, I know I'm the best candidate for the job um, and the voters just might make a mistake. Um, so I, John Adams, I'm going to make it a crime to criticize John Adams and I'm going to do my best to actually make sure that no one uh, other than John Adams is even allowed to, to fairly compete for this position. And John Adams had this view, and you can see a little bit about where he was coming from. He thought he was entitled it, entitled to it by, by dint of his biography and his past service, as his contributions. But that was the wrong way of thinking about America's Constitution, which is why Thomas Jefferson uh, won. And the Three-Fifths Clause <laughs> helped, gave Jefferson a lot of wind at his back. Um, and I would say as a constitutionalist, there's a similar problem with the current Yale trustees saying, basically, it's for us to decide 
who should fill the, these alumni spots when the Constitution of Yale, the charter of Yale, basically says it's for the alums to decide. Um, and the alums, by the charter, are trusted to be the right decision makers in the way that the U.S. Constitution trusts the voters to be the right decision makers. So that's the, the deep connection between this special episode about Yale's Constitution, um, uh, this special ep- episode, and the more general themes of this podcast. I agree with you, Akil. I, I appreciate the chance to speak with you, uh, with Professor Christakis, and with our audience about this. You know, I imagine that some of our audience are feeling a bit up in arms about Yale's actions at this point. Uh, I would encourage them, first of all, to look at my site that we mentioned earlier, lipkoforyale.com, just to be fully informed on this and um, for their developments, I can I can put them up there. Um, and I believe that uh, Yale President Peter Salovey might be interested in, in hearing your views, audience. Uh, you know, the trustees were counting on alumni just fading away. But let's not do that. Thank you. <laughs>